One of the things I learned in finance and as I've been advising and guiding startups as well is how many people don't actually know how to run the core element of their company. So either you're using a white label solution with a bank and that's great for moving fast at the beginning, but to continue to build a product which has millions of users on it where you don't understand the core fundamentals of a banking system or a logistics and, and transport business, I think is something that's a bit naive and you will come unstuck because of it. Welcome to Product with Banash. I'm Axel, and in this show, I talk to product leaders and experienced operators across Europe and beyond. Together, we'll learn about their craft, how they build successful products, and unpack the frameworks and secrets they've used in delivering growth for their businesses. Today, I'm super excited to welcome Georgie Smallwood, who's currently Chief Product Officer at TM Mobility, where she leads all consumer functions, including product, marketing, customer care, design, and research. Previously, Georgie was Chief Product Officer at N26, where she grew the product from 800,000 users to 7 million globally. She built the product team from six product owners to 150 cross-functional professionals. Hi, Georgie. How are you today? I'm really good, thanks. It's a sunny day and uh, I've had to close all my shutters. We can see each other properly. It's a good problem to have. Exactly. More often than not, you're trying to get more sunshine in, but really good. How are you? I'm really good. I've been looking forward to this conversation. We were just by someone who was on the show before and I asked them, who should I hear from? And they said, they didn't actually blink. They were like, you should speak to Georgie. So I'm super happy we're having the opportunity to have this conversation. Before we dive into today's topics, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. So if you can't tell from the accent, I'm an Australian. I was born and grew up in Melbourne. I actually didn't get my passport till I was 21. So I'm very Australian. I didn't start in tech. I'm a little bit older than I would like to admit. So I started in, in media and I worked in, actually I worked for news magazines with Vogue and a couple yep. of other women's titles in advertising. And I really fell in love with storytelling and how advertising can really reach out and touch people's lives and impact them in a way that potentially they didn't realize, right? For instance, we built this amazing digital campaign for craft singles. So kids could make shapes out of their craft singles and then they could upload that shape onto the internet. This is in 2006. <laughs> this was <Yeah>. about, <laughs> as, about as cutting edge as it gets. And so working in advertising, I really fell in love with that storytelling aspect and I moved to digital and I moved into a property portal called realestate.com.au. And that was where I fell in love with hyper growth. We grew rapidly. At one point, we were Australia's biggest tech company, which probably tells you more about the Australian population and how obsessed they are with <laughs> houses and property. If you haven't watched the block, you should. And there I grew the media business with the sales team and the business manager from three people where I was the campaign manager, right? I was managing campaigns and putting ads online and, and I built that team and grew that team to 30 people across Australia. And so as part of that, you really have to take a product approach. So you can't scale a team just with people alone. You had to do it with technology. So every time we needed something, I would have to think about how we could do it more efficiently or better or with less cost. And so that really taught me about hyper growth and, and moving and scaling and really achieving things that you didn't think were going to be possible the year before. And then I went to Hong Kong <laughs> with the same company and I, I had was charged with a similar responsibility and I completely failed <laughs> in the first six months because I assumed that you could get the same outcome the same way. And that was my first really big learning in growing companies and growing teams and growing revenue even is that it's not all the same and you can't always get the same outcome by doing the same things. You have to work out what the correct inputs are to get the outcomes that you're trying to achieve. So that was a massive learning for me and was very much related to cultural differences and how different people work and what's important to them. And so after Hong Kong, we went to Germany <laughs> 
And I think you probably couldn't pick three more culturally diverse <laughs> environments. Yeah, I know. I was going to say. Australia, Hong Kong and Germany. And so there as part of the IPO team at a company called Scout24. And very similar thing, but with a very different outcome. Like we really were driving up towards a hard date of an IPO as a product person which was the first time I ever had a role which actually had the word product in the title. I didn't build much at all. In fact, I pulled things apart and a lot of commercial unbundling and optimizing of costs. I hated the job. (laughs) It was terrible. (laughs) I like building things, but it really instilled in me a very strong foundation of commercial acumen when I build products. So how much they cost, what are the multiple revenue streams, who are the multiple customers, those kind of things. And after we did that, I went back to Australia and joined a software company called Xero. And that was great because until then I'd worked in advertising, which is very much about the consumer journey and storytelling and all the problems are along that consumer journey. Whereas in software, all the problems are down (laughs) in the code and really had an amazing tech lead at Zero called Kage. And he taught me the importance of architecture and how to make sure that you could find opportunities in things. And he pretty much taught me about tech debt and how to work within those constraints. And then N26 called me and asked if I would come and build their product team in Germany. And it was a rocket ship that I wasn't going to miss out on. So I was literally from first interview to when I started was about three and a half months. Um, That brought me back to Germany. And from N26, from so N- the love affair, <laughs> a love affair with Germans. And from N26, I, I was the CPO there for two and a half years. And now I'm a CPO at Tier Mobility. Interestingly, the CPO, when I was a CPO at N26, I was the second CPO and at Tier, I'm the first CPO. So taking those early positions as well and bringing that consumer mentality and that product thinking mentality into businesses that are already really successful has been something that I've really enjoyed. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing context in your journey with us. Super inspiring and super insightful. I've I've got like a million questions now. Before we dive into these, tell us a little bit about TIA. What do you guys do at TIA? So one of the reasons I joined TIA was the executive team. I was really impressed with the founders. Both had successfully grown and exited very successful companies before, Rebuy and Liferando. The chief financial officer blew me away. I think when you've been an exec in tech companies, you realize just how important having a great CFO, especially when you're the product leader, and also having a great CTO. I'm Matthias Laug as the co-founder was one of the main reasons that I joined the company. When I gravitate towards products and jobs, I guess, I, as you can see, I don't really gravitate towards a specific vertical. Like it's not like I've been in e-com forever or I've been in transport or finance or whatever it is. I tend to gravitate towards products that are changing the way that people are doing things and for a good reason. So when I joined N26, it was really about moving from the branch in the high street to an online app and getting people to understand that they could trust software. And that's a really difficult psychological thing to figure out. And Tier was the same. Tier was even earlier though. So Tier is a type of transport that people in cities don't even know that they need yet. And so it was even earlier in that psychological life cycle where really we have to show people what they can do and then get them to do it. Whereas at N26, we were that next level on, whereas really like people knew that they could bank online, they just weren't there yet. Whereas really getting people to move away from cars and move into more sustainable transport options is a really difficult ask because you've already got your car, right? You've paid for it probably, it's sitting on the street, it's convenient, it's there. But not only are cars polluting our environment through CO2 emissions, but they're also making our cities way less livable than they need to be. And as a parent, I want my kids to be able to play in the streets. I want them to be able to, when I was a kid, we used to roll the wheelie bin out and play cricket in the street. And yeah, when the car came, you'd wheel it off, but that's not even possible now, not only because there's too many cars going down the street, but you can't, there's no space because everyone's parked. I had exactly the same conversation the other day with someone and we were reminiscing about the time our childhood where typically we used to play in the street and 
our kids don't get to do this. And, no, they and don't. We, and we were like, like it, I don't know, it was, I don't know, it's so special to be able just to be outside and explore, experiment and do things like a few yards from your own house. And now you've got to go to the park and it's like this secure area. And yeah, it's a completely different experience. Absolutely. And it even just changes the way that you do things. Like my mm. husband and I walk my daughter to school in the morning and in Berlin, we can't hold hands because there's not enough space. Now, I'm well aware that some of that space is now taken up by micromobility, so I'm not going to say <laughs> that I have the magic solution to this, but we certainly need different solutions. Mm. And I wanted to be part of a product that was going to change the way that people moved and lived in cities. And that was really why I joined. And that was why I also wanted to bring a consumer focus to it. And the reason I joined TIA as opposed from a competitor is because of that commercial acumen side of things. So one of the things I learned in finance and as I've been advising and guiding startups as well, is how many people don't actually know how to run the core element of their company, right? So either you're using a white label solution. So with a bank, for instance, like Solaris has a great product mm -hmm. there, but, and that's great for moving fast at the beginning, but to continue to build a product which has millions of users on it, where you don't understand the core fundamentals of a banking system or a logistics and, and transport business, I think is something that's a bit naive and you will come unstuck because of it. And Tier was well known as being the best operationally excellent micromobility company. And, and when I look at products, I also make sure that there are multiple revenue streams, even if you never use them, right? I could see Tier being a white label platform, right? Like a micromobility platform because they knew how to do that so well. Now we do it for ourselves. We don't do it for other people, but that's something that I thought would be an option if always making sure that a second way to make money. So what I thought I could do was really add something to that organization. And when I spoke with Lawrence, the founder, he really was aware that operational excellence had got them so far, which was a long way, and had really got SoftBank investing and a number of yep. really A-list people and companies. But consumer obsession was going to be what got them on that next hockey stick. And so that's why I joined really to be that consumer leader. It's really interesting. You talk a lot about commercial acumen and finance. I recently had an amazing conversation with somebody from Down Under, actually. I had this podcast episode with Rhiannon White, who ah, I love is, <laughs> who is Chief Product Officer at Clue. And we talked a little bit about why it's super important to have a BFF in finance. And one of the topics I think a lot of operators in product are not necessarily tackling upfront is this kind of skill gap in understanding business model, how the company makes money. You talked about the revenue streams, optionality in future revenue streams, et cetera. Yeah. What is your view on this based on your experience and having built a number of product teams so far? How are you getting these people upskilled around these financial elements? So I think this is a great question, which I love. And it's also what's awesome about product management. I don't believe that you can go to uni and learn how to be a product manager. And I'm very passionate about bringing people with expertise and the natural talent for product management. So great communication skills, good coordination, cares about making sure everyone comes on the journey and taking people out of those really functional roles into product management. So for instance, at N26, my financial controller was a great guy called Andrew. He was fantastic and passionate and driven and ideas. And he's he now leads membership for product. So I think it's really important. And this is something I learned in my career as well, because I was a generalist, right? I was I came in as a campaign manager, media coordinator, and I just grew in that leadership role because we were scaling. And at one point in time, then I was running like a technical excellence team and managers, and I didn't know how to functionally code, right? I had to teach myself HTML5 because I found I was embarrassed going into meetings and not being able to do these things. But product management is a bit like a skill set around something. 
And sometimes you can get halfway through your career or even higher and realize it's not around something strong enough. And then you need to get that strong enough skill in the middle because you need to be an expert in something. And you can learn that as you're a product manager. So for instance, you have product managers who come in early as junior PMs and they gravitate towards the data side of things. But you really do need to be an expert in something. And really that financial commercial understanding for me was a really big part of what I build and how I build products. And I think if you had hyper, hyper commercial organization, it might not be the place for me because I'm really good at bringing that commercial view into an organization. One of the things I've seen is that in a lot of organizations, I'm not sure the leaders themselves have identified that there is a skill gap around this like financial element. So that's one thing. And the second thing is, it seems to me there's this like constant challenge around how do product leaders, whether it's director, VP, CPO, make time to actually coach their teams and elevate the level of practice in their product practice, right? I don't know if you've seen similar challenges. I know everybody knows there's this thing like product people are busy. I get that. But I think it's also really important to think about your role as a product leader and how at the end of the day, your success is basically your team success and helping them grow and have coverage in terms of these skills is what's ultimately going to make the business perform, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's sometimes it can be hard, especially when you've got large teams, that you think that it's your singular responsibility. And I think this is something that I also struggled with as I became into those executive C-level positions. It's not possible to do everything yourself, but that's not what the job is. The job is to ensure that it's being done. And learning what to delegate and how to delegate it and how to make sure that's being done in the fashion that you would want it to be executed is a real art that you need to learn. And I don't think you need to learn it earlier. It's not Mm -hmm. something that really becomes essential, but from director and above, it really does become something that you need to start figuring out how to do. So for instance, at TIA, we have a second year product manager growth program. Product managers are notorious for being learning sponges, right? Like they want to absorb things. They want to learn things. They want to apply new things. One of the challenges when scaling an organization really fast is that if everyone's doing that and they're doing different things, then actually you can have a problem, which is that everyone is going in a million different directions and they're doing it for the right reasons and they're all really good things, but there's no cumulative impact. So what I did was I carved out some training budget from people and they do need to use their own professional development budget to do this, but I found a little bit more. So not only does that create a self-service learning, right? They can choose to use it for something else. And I'm not doing it out of just the generosity of my heart. I want people to learn. I want people to get better, but I also want people to use the same (laughs) structures and templates as each other so that I can get cumulative impact from that investment. Yeah. And then people are sharing the same language. They are looking at the same practices. Yeah. Like you said, it's like there's this, you know, multiplying effect, which I think is really important. Do you feel stuck, not knowing how to tackle a problem, or you're looking for a solution to help your team members grow in their craft? Either way, check out panache.io. Panache works with product leaders to bring expert insights and proven frameworks you can use in your role as a product person. Companies like Atlassian, Content Square, and Miracle all choose Panache to provide the right level of training and coaching to their product teams so they can perform at their best. Whether you're a product leader or an individual contributor, Head to panache.io to get an idea of how we can help you level up today. Check out panache.io. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O. I want to touch on one thing you mentioned earlier. So you talked about TIA. We talked about financial business acumen. Obviously, the economic context in which we are operating right now is a bit different, right? So... I'm keen to hear about what does that mean from your perspective as a product leader at TIA? What are some of the things maybe you've been doing differently? How is that impacting your role? 
Yeah, I think it's probably the understatement of the year to say that it's not easy being an executive in a tech company in 22-23. That said, there are silver linings, right? And there are opportunities. And I do think that one of the most difficult things at the moment is steering an organization through a very turbulent economic time, while at the same time showing them what the opportunities are without sounding like you're trying to sugarcoat the difficulties that are happening because it is hard and it's not just economic, it's also social, right? So we have a war in Ukraine, we have the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, we have lots of different challenges, not to mention just the things that people are going through in their own personal life off the back of two or three years of COVID, moving around, aging populations, like all of these different things. And with people not really returning to work, we really live in this world now where work and home physically merged. And so that does mean that lots of topics come up in a professional environment that never used to. And managers are becoming the people that are responsible for listening and hearing and responding and are being asked essentially to answer, which they can't, those questions that that people have. So it's a real, really interesting time to be a leader, yeah, especially in a tech company. But I would say that probably the finance industry is saying, yeah, we've had this for the last 10 years, so you can deal with it for a little bit longer. But the reality is as well that we're coming off a decade of growth. And so really a large proportion of the people in our organizations have only ever known upwards. And that's not to say that they should know any different, but you have to understand people's context to make sure that they can process what is happening and not in a way that is catastrophizing all the time. So I think that everyone is trying to do more with less. And the way I think about it is every business, you have to think about it just like you're a freelancer, right? So if you were a freelancer and you'd have five or six years of heaps of work, you upgraded your car, you maybe hired an admin assistant, you bought some new clothes, did all of this stuff where you invested because you've been on this growth trajectory. And then 50% of your customers cancel. What do you do? You don't just give up and keep going and keep paying for your expensive car and your admin assistant and all of these things. You cut costs, right? And you streamline to get through that period of time so that you can come back stronger later. And you prioritize making sure that you keep those business relationships, the customers that canceled, you keep in touch with them. Maybe you even invest on taking them for coffee at once a quarter just to stay in touch so that when it comes back. And that's exactly the same with bigger companies. And I think that's what people in the team also need to think about it that way. Like lots of other tech companies have let people go and it's been awful. And I think the hardest part about letting people go is how you let people go, which is really important. But also sometimes you need to let 5%, 10% go so that the 90% can stay and so that you can re-employ and grow again after this period is over. And that's a responsibility that companies have. But sometimes, and the larger the company that's a hard thing to communicate to a large group of people who are potentially also very diverse in their background and skills and what's important to them. This resonates a lot, right? I was in a company a few years back and it was this round of layoffs and I remember it not being an easy experience. I was lucky my role wasn't affected, but we let a lot of people go on that day and it was not easy to manage. And like you say, how you let people go is a big part of it. And I think I also like the fact you talk about the silver lining, because what I'm also seeing at the moment is, especially in these tough times, there's a lot of opportunity space being created, right? People are having to think a little bit more creatively about how they do things. Constraints that are being imposed on some of these businesses are actually creating the innovation itself. And I'm keen to hear from your experience and some of the stuff you're doing, First of all, have those constraints actually helped or maybe unlocked some opportunities and potential for you, your team at TIA? But also, 
how are you making sure the team is thriving during such a difficult time? Yeah. So I think there's, maybe it's a personal attitude as well, but certainly I believe there's always an opportunity. You just need to find it. It is there. I think those can be for the company and for the individual. It's never, ever a good experience to be let go from a company. Even if you were thinking of quitting and now you've got some time to think about your new job, no one likes to be let go, right? It makes you feel like you're not valued. But of course, that's not the case. Otherwise, if you weren't valued, you would have been let go a long time before that point. And so there are opportunities for individuals. I've seen some amazing startups come out of of periods like this. And we talk about 2008 and the GFC and the companies that came out of that situation. And that will be the same for this. What's interesting as well is that it's not really that there's less jobs in the market at the moment. The jobs are moving. So there are a lot of people going to Series A and early stage companies where the funding is potentially less capped at this point in time. And there are so many people moving to freelancing and and having a brilliant time and realizing that they love the flexibility. I was just talking with with someone this morning and she was like, oh no, I've left and I'm freelancing and it's amazing. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm doing this wrong. (laughs) Bali sounds amazing right now. Uh, Yeah, of course. (laughs) If you throw things like Bali into the mix, then yeah. My brother is the best example of this. My brother's a plumber. He was working for a commercial plumbing company and he was let go because in those service industries, when there's no work, that's what happens. And from that, he started his own company, which has then been what he's done for the last 10 years and has been way more successful than he would have been had he stayed in that great hourly rate role as a commercial plumber. But why would you do it when you're getting paid a great hourly rate? So there is opportunities for individuals, but there's also opportunities for companies. For instance, with micromobility, one of the challenges that, that citizens and cities have faced is an unregulated market. And then you have lots and lots of vehicles that potentially aren't fit for purpose being strewn around cities. And I'm the first person to walk around and complain that scooters aren't standing up. But one of the things that has been really interesting is is an expensive business. You really need to know about your hardware. You need to know how to run your companies logistically. And there are many companies that won't survive because they won't be able to get through this period of cost crunching. And Tia's not one of them because we know how to run that business. And I think back to when I thought about why I was joining and I think, oh, that was a smart move by me. And But you will see a consolidation of the market. And that does also mean that you will see better product on the street, not from individual companies only, but also just from the industry as a whole. And the less major companies that there are, the more we can work together, the more we can agree to safer regulations, the more that we can work with cities. When a city has 27 scooter companies to deal with, they don't deal with them, right? When they have three, that's a much easier proposition. So it will be a really good thing for the market to have a consolidation that happens, which happens in all industries, right? Like things qualificate and then they come back. And that's a huge opportunity for Tier to really lead the way. We're the largest micromobility company in the world. So we have an opportunity really to lead the way as far as what the next five and 10 years of micro transport looks like. I'm also super curious to dive a little bit into your past experience. Part of this show, right, the way I look at it is how guests like yourself can come in and share their experience and to some extent, a little bit of the secret sauce with the wider community, but also beyond. I'd be really keen if we could look at your career and if you could share some of the biggest learnings, you've shared one earlier around failure you had when you moved to Hong Kong and thought you could basically copy paste a recipe that would produce the same outcome. What have been some of the other major learnings you've had and how have these things helped you on your career tra- trajectory? I think the biggest one for me, and I'm not sure, I certainly didn't craft my career. So I wasn't someone who thought, oh, I'm going to do this way and then I'm going to get this experience and then this experience. I really just said yes to lots of things. And That has been my biggest opportunity. And I think that's also probably something that 
I would advise people to think about when they're in their career and they think about what can I do. I get asked a lot, how did you become an executive? I don't know. I just said yes, is generally my answer, which is a kind of a cop out. But I think if you embrace opportunity, more comes. And that has certainly been true for me. I'm not sure if it's something with the universe and if you put it out there, it comes back. I don't know. But that that has been my experience is that the more you say yes, the more opportunities come that you want to say yes to. And I think because of that approach to things, that's also why I ended up with this career, which looks a bit strange when you read my CV because it's non-vertical agnostic and unless you hear me talk about it, you think, oh God, like Australia and Hong Kong and Germany. And then if we talk about it, you'll realize I worked for the same CEO in Australia and Hong Kong and Germany. So there was, there's huge consistency through that. And because I said yes to Hong Kong is probably why he reached out and said, will you come to Germany? Because you've proven that you're someone who will take an opportunity. I think that's what's created my career around this vertical agnostic and the thing that that has taught me by looking at lots of different industries in the technology space, not just in advertising, but in software, in B2B and B2C, is that they are all different, but they're also all the same. And I think that for me, learning in Hong Kong that there's no template for success, what you also need to learn is that everything is a system. And the more that you learn, the more kind of depth you can add to your systems thinking. And then you can pull on tools depending on the situation that you're in. So I really do think about companies. And I do think when you're working in tech as a CPO, you really, you're a company builder because if you don't think about it that way, you think I'm just a product builder, you're missing the most important thing that I've learned in my career which is that people build products. And if you don't think about it like that and you don't think I'm building a company that builds products and people are that company, then you won't, it won't work. It might work for a year. You might get some traction, but then you'll forget that people needed growth plans or that you needed to check in on them when there was a crisis or, and then people leave and then you lose your IP the quality of your product goes down, your customers start complaining. Everything is connected. It's all connected, right? Yeah. It's all connected. And I think the biggest thing that I've learned is that that people build those products and humans are complex. And so you can't just assume that it just works. If you go into a product organization, you say, oh, I'm a design thinking product leader. I'm going to do the double diamond. I'm like, Okay, that's a tool that you can use to get your processes right and get your thinking right. But if you don't have people that are engaged in that process or that understand it properly or that are passionate about it, the double diamond doesn't do anything. And so it's funny, like lots of people have spoken to me about CPO roles, product roles, and then said, well, what about the chief people officer role? I don't want to underestimate the importance of the chief people officer role. In fact, part of the reason I think this way as a product leader is because of the great chief people officers that I have worked with. Norvan Boven at N26, she was the chief people officer there. And as a first time executive, she taught me so much. And now she's branched out on her own. She's advising portfolio companies for funds. And I just couldn't recommend her enough because if you don't put people first, you won't build a product. And to to your point before, how do you ensure that everyone's okay at the moment and how do you ensure they're engaged? And that is the hardest part because if you have a compensation freeze or a hiring freeze and you delay promotions, how do you keep people engaged? When you've just taken away the tools that you taught for the last 10 years of how we recognize good performance. And so that's when context is super important and sharing experiences and hindsights. And that's why sometimes I feel a bit like I'm 
Telly, I'm like their mum, right? I'm saying something that you're like, yeah, I get it. I get it. But hindsight is really a beautiful thing. And I think we spoke earlier about those times when I've said yes. Like it sounds like they were all great. I promise you they won't. <laughs> they weren't. The number of clear times that I've said yes when I've been completely taken advantage of. I haven't been paid for the extra job that I took on or I did double roles on the promise that I would get a promotion and it never happened. At one point I was working in the same company as my husband and the answer in the end was he earns enough so I didn't need the compensation. Yeah, The beauty of being a woman trying to rise in tech. But I don't regret any of them and I wouldn't be here now if I hadn't done them. So even though in, in isolation they were quite upsetting, I was really disappointed in some people and frustrated lots of times without doing that work and getting those experiences, I wouldn't be in the role that I am today. So sometimes I know I was, I've been 26, right? I've been a 26 year old person in hyper growth and thinking and knowing that I'm doing more work than I'm being compensated or recognized for. And you, no one's taking that choice away from you. But sometimes it's better to stay and see what's going to happen. Not forever. Don't get walked over, but give some time for opportunities to present themselves that maybe you didn't realize were there before. Because certainly if I look back, those are the times where I've had the biggest jumps in my career and you need to use them. So sometimes yeah. you talk about the extra job that maybe wasn't in your job title, but it's not all happy sailing. And the more senior you get in your career, the waters get choppier and choppier. So the key skill to learn as a product person, sure, but as anyone working in tech at the moment, I think is adaptability. I think a lot of what you're describing here makes a lot of sense, especially the point around how the product game is a people game, right? You talk about humans build products and human beings at their core are complex. We're complex, right? And I can see just through this conversation, I was reflecting on some of the past experiences I had as, a, as an employee in some of the companies. Who your manager is and who is leading the organization has so much influence and impact on, well, your career outcomes in the first place, but also the direction your life takes. I had a super interesting conversation recently with Chris, who's the VP product at Airbase, and he was telling me about how product is hard, right? And a lot of what we do as product people, we have our identity, which is weaved in so much into the stuff that we do at work. And this line between life and work becomes quite blurry, right? So yeah. you look around you, most product people, they're just like really passionate about the stuff that they do at work. And they bring all of this stuff at home and it's like, very hard to find a clear line between these two things. And one of the things I'm interested in exploring with you is how have you, especially when you've talked about how sometimes you've piled up some of these roles, because so when you're in this land of promises, how have you managed this? How have you managed the, to find a balance? Yeah. So I think firstly, I've learned that nothing is true unless it's in writing. So that if I can give anyone one piece of advice to take away, I tell when I joined Tier, I told them all, I was like, unless I've written that to you, it doesn't count. So if I've said that I'm going to write it and I haven't, chase me and get it in writing. If something's not in writing, it's not true. It doesn't happen. Things change too fast for anything to happen that way. So that was a good principle and I learned it the hard way. The next part is that I think... My job is intense. It's really intense. And it's way more intense than I thought it was going to be because of the people aspect of it and because I can't always do the things that I want to do or the things that I think are the right thing to do because my job is to make sure that this company is successful. And how I do that is important to me, but I can't always do the things that I want to do. And you can take that home. <laughs> Trust me, you can take that home. And as I've become more senior, I've also had to learn 
to distance myself. So in my 20s and early 30s, I'm your classic products manager. I'm obsessed. I want to talk about it. I want to be fresh. I can imagine the dinner parties. My husband's in tech as well. It never stops. And I love it. I really do. And I do lots of extra extracurricular stuff with women in tech and startups and pro bono because like you said earlier, I get a lot out of advising younger companies. They think I'm advising them, but I'm also getting this fresh point of view and perspective on new things from them. Mm. It's exhausting. And the more senior I get, and probably also the older I get, the more I realize that work cannot be everything. It doesn't matter how much you love it. You really have to put that boundary in place And it's really hard boundary to put in, especially if you love it. It's a bit like trying to quit Diet Coke, right? You love it. It's great. And with our work, it can also be unhealthy, right? And if that is everything, then that's difficult because your work does not owe you anything. And I think if you get into a mindset where you think that your company owes you something and that's the entirety of your being, you're only going to be really disappointed because no company can live up to that because in the end they have a different goal, right? Now, if you're lucky, and I hope more companies become like this, you'll work for a company that has profitability goal and they want to do it in a human and caring way. And I do believe that Tier is a company like that. That doesn't mean every decision that we make, everyone will think is a caring decision. So the only way that you can get away from that is really to put that boundary in place between work and home and make sure that you have other things going on. Because otherwise, if you do get laid off or something happens, which is completely outside of your control, everything else goes. There's nothing else. So I think that's the most important part of really, for me, working out how I can keep going and how I can keep having these roles. And lots of people talk about reading books or having a career coach. And honestly, the best thing for me has been getting a therapist. For me, in my experience, if I'm talking about a work problem with a therapist, it's always something that's not about work. (laughs) And if I'm talking about a personal problem, There's also some similarities associated with work because of this synergy between work and home that we have now. And I think if you can learn about boundaries and how to set those up and protect yourself and learn what a boundary is, it's not a request. You're not saying, I would like you to do something. You're saying, if you don't do this, I'm going to do this. And those are not easy things to learn how to do right? That you need to invest some time in them as much as going to mine the product or product con or or something like that. But certainly those skills are the ones that have probably projected my career further than any product book that I've read. And I think that's something that's really important because you can then scale as a human. When I left N26, one of the things I didn't realize until I had two months off was that I hadn't taken my daughter to school in however long that I could remember without taking a call or answering an email. And it's always been really important to me that I take her to school, but taking her to school while you're on the phone with someone else probably doesn't really count. And it was very difficult for me to just put the phone down. The fact that was difficult was shocking for me. And so the boundaries aren't always with other people. Sometimes they're also with yourself and you need to learn how to set those boundaries up and One of the things as a product leader, and maybe as leaders in general, I don't know, is that it can be really lonely because not many other people have the responsibility of your job. And it's really hard because you don't have peers in the company that understand your function like you do. So it's not like being a director where you have other directors or heads of or VPs and you can't, so your team are the people that understand your function But as a C-level, you have two roles. One is the C and the other is the PO. And sometimes you're just doing the C role. And 
So it, it can be really lonely. Yeah. But then if you don't invest in your personal relationships so that you have those there, which I wasn't because I was so busy working, then loneliness can seep into everything. And then all of a sudden you're really unhappy, even though you love your job and you love your team and you, you love everything. So I think, again, it just comes back to people building products. I'm one of those people and you need to look after the person in whatever way you can. And sometimes the company can do that. And sometimes your manager can do that. But most of the time and the most control that you have is being able to look after yourself. And I think as product people, we think about this all the time. We talk about discovery and delivery and development and all of this, but sometimes we don't apply it to our own situations and we should. A lot of what you said immensely resonates. Specifically, mentioned the best thing you did was seeing a therapist. I think one of the flipping moments for me in the past two to three years was finding out about nonviolent communication and that practice. So the team at work, we all got trained following a consultancy gig for a company. We walked in the first day and we looked at everybody around us and thought, wow, what an amazing culture. Where is this coming from? And after doing a bit of digging, we realized that systematically, every single person joining that company as part of their onboarding program had nonviolent communication training. Wow. So we thought we were going to do it as well. So we got trained in the first two modules, which is like four days of training in total with a dedicated person. And it taught me so much about the fact that you're not going to change the world and that most of what you can change is within yourself. And also exploring this topic, I found out about this thing called internal family systems, which is completely fascinating. And it's this theory about which as a person, as a single human being, you're composed of so many different parts and each part of yourself sometimes reacts to certain situations. So you have these triggers for some of the situations you're, you're in. For example, suddenly I have one of my parts is a guardian. So sometimes I'm in a situation where I feel like I have to protect. And before doing, before EFS and reading about it and getting coached about it, I didn't know this. It's crazy because some of this stuff tells you so much about yourself and how you can basically better understand yourself and therefore better understand the world around you and how you behave in that world. And I think, like you mentioned, sometimes we're caught in the day-to-day -day of our activities as product people. It's an intense job and we completely forget about ourselves. Yeah. And yeah, that just that resonates a lot. And I think if I had to give a piece of advice, it would be to actually create time and space for product people to actually find themselves in a situation where they can look inwards. I think that's super important. But don't you think it's interesting that like pretty much every product manager you've ever met advocates slowing down to speed up in delivery, but then we don't do it ourselves. Yeah. It's crazy. Like it's, we're fine to keep going and going and going and going. What are the big paradoxes that, of life? I and I think this is, and we've spoken a lot about some quite psychological elements and teams and people and stuff. And we haven't spoken a lot about building products and how to do that, but everything is connected. So for instance, one of the things that we've developed intensively over the last year and a half at Tier is really specific growth loops and seg customer segmentation mm -hmm. and retention analysis and all of these things apply. So if you think about it and you think about what you were talking about of internally in the different parts of you, all your customers have this too. And whether you're a B2C and you have 7 million customers or you're a B2B and you've got 30, but you've got key account managers in each of those companies, you need to understand what their drivers are psychologically. So for instance, one of the hypotheses that we had with scooters was that if you can get people to 10 rides, they're a micro-mobility user. What's really interesting is that psychologically that doesn't hold true. When you get people to the 10th ride, they decide if they're a micro-mobility user or not, right? And that's a very different growth loop yeah. to take people on. And you need to change your segmentation to understand how to get people 
to increase the usage and increase the engagement. And so the same things apply. So people build products because people use products. And so really what's interesting when I talk, because I talk a lot about this on at product conferences, and sometimes I get feedback and it's, oh, you're going to talk about building products. I'm like, I have been talking about building products and growth loops and virality. And those things don't happen. They don't just happen, right? You have to understand your consumers and work out who it is that you're trying to target and what you want them to do. Do they have the propensity to do that? And whether you're talking about, do they have the propensity to ride micromobility? Do they have the propensity to use a new function in your software solution? Or do they have the propensity to keep building a product without the promotion that they've been promised? It's the same thing. And so I think we need people to make, we need to make sure that leaders understand that because otherwise you're only going to be focused on short term. And that's hard at the moment, right? Because it is quite short termist, right? Everyone needs to make sure that we hit profitability gotta survive. faster. Yeah. You've got to survive. And so there are some things that you're going to have to give, but think about what you're giving. And then make sure that you don't give the things that you can't build back. Super inspiring. Before we wrap up, I want to go to the next segment of the show, which is my favorite segment, actually, which is called the, the treasure chest. This is where hopefully you'll be sharing a lot of your secrets with me and our audience. I want to hear a little bit about some of the most helpful resources you've used in the past to be impactful within your different remits. And we'll talk a little bit about the gift of hindsight. Why don't you tell us what are some of these resources, if you have any? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, actually, I have a book. It's a very odd product book to talk about. It's actually not a product book, but like I said, it is about people. Mm -hmm. And it's called FYI, right? It's for your improvement. It's by Corn Ferry. And what's really interesting about it is it has different sections. It's a skills-based book. So for instance, in here, I have peer relationships, right? So I have had someone in my team before who wasn't great at peer relationships. And in here, it has, if they're unskilled, if they're skilled, or what we don't talk about a lot is if they have an overused skill. And In it, it can give you advice on how to navigate that. Is a peer out of line? Avoid telling others all about it if a peer doesn't play fair. It's really, it's like a management Bible. Like a a companion almost. Totally. Every job I've ever had, this book comes out. And I even photocopy pages or take pictures of them and send them to people. It's expensive. It's 80 euros or something like that. It's worth every single penny. I highly recommend you get that. Other than that, I don't read a lot of books. Russ Laraway has been amazing. He's the chief people officer at Goodwater Capital, but he was he's ex-Google, he's an ex-operator, and he wasn't in the people function, right? He was the chief people officer at Amplitude, but that was his first people role ever. So he has a similar philosophy to me, and he just recently wrote a book, which I think everyone should read as well. But... Other than that, I would say embrace difficult conversations. So some of the most pivotal development conversations I've had are with people who are telling me things I didn't want to hear. So the most one that sticks in my head is really with the an old mentor of mine. He wasn't really a mentor, actually. I'd worked for him a couple of times. He was a bit of a difficult personality and we were having breakfast and I was asking for his opinion. I had just come back from maternity leave. We'd moved countries. We were in the Scout 24 IPO. And I was thinking maybe I should go into startups or what should I do? And he said, what do you do? And I was like, well, you know what I do. You've hired me a few times. I'm really good at navigating between tech and business. He's like, no, 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 no. Are you a salesperson? Are you an engineer? Are you a product person? I'm like, you know what? Except for the engineer, which I would need to learn to code. I could probably do any of those roles. He was like, yeah, I don't have a job for you. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, you've hired me multiple I'm good. And he's, yeah, but I need a salesperson. I need a product manager and I need a business analyst. Which one are you? He's like, you need to be an expert in something. It's great to have general leadership skills, but the career goes like this to this point, And then it's this. And I had some of these skills, but I didn't have enough of these skills. And he said, if you want a job, You need to be 
a no-brainer as far as this is concerned. And then you'll accelerate if you don't have the leadership skills and you won't accelerate through that final third. But you need to be an expert and be fulfill that expertise role. Now, he wasn't even that kind. He essentially said, I wasn't an expert. I didn't know enough about anything. And could I be Charming. more decisive <laughs> in my career? And I left, kind of had a nine-month-old at home. I was like, I just don't know what I'm doing. And that was when I decided I was going to take a two steps down from a hierarchy perspective and really take that product role as a senior product manager. And it was the best thing I ever did. It was the hardest decision I ever made because no one likes to give up that pay and that level of authority, but you can't be a chief product officer if you haven't been a product manager. Correct. So I think embrace those difficult conversations. As I said, say yes. So your default answer should be yes. Think about it after, figure it out. You can always pull back and whatever people say, it doesn't matter. A lot of these decisions are reversible, right? Every, most things in life are a two-way door, Mm. right? Like you go through that door, you can come straight back through it if you want to. There's very few that are one-way doors. And the other is I do, I think if you're in tech or in any fast paced, high pressure environment, you should see a therapist or someone who can help you process your thinking around something. Sometimes that's a friend or a family member, but I think that's a really great way, even if sometimes the therapist doesn't talk the whole session, and but it's a time just for you to sit and think and reflect and get help if you need it on something that has been bothering you. Whereas we're so fast paced and we're so on the go all the time, sometimes I go into a session and I think, ah. Oh, this is going to be 10 minutes. And then it's, okay, we've finished the hour. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I didn't realize that those things had been bothering. So I think look after your mental health is really important because without it, you won't be able to do anything. Thank you. Next question. What advice would you give yourself, your early career self? There's so many things that you would want to say. And like I said, I don't regret decisions because I've learned so much from them. I think I would just tell myself not to worry so much. I was so concerned if it was going to be the right decision or the wrong decision, or if I should be doing more, or I should be doing less, or I should be paid more, or I should be. In the end, just, I would say, keep, you're on the right track. Keep following your gut feel and don't take home as much. Don't worry so much about the things that you don't have any control over. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Now <laughs> I love these two questions and I love how guests sometimes have very surprising answers. You're going to imagine that you're stranded on a desert island, right? Yeah. And you can have the two following things. One, a book. You're going to tell me which book you would take. And two, an endless supply of one specific dish for all meals going forward, right? So you've got to, you've got to choose one. And that's what you're eating for the, for the rest of time. What would that book be and what would that dish be? So the dish is easy. <laughs> wow, I've never heard that before. The dish is easy. The dish is burrata and ripe cherry tomatoes. Wow. Preferably from Chaconis. And I know that makes me sound like a toast. <laughs> I know exactly what that makes me sound like. But if you haven't had it... Just you do it. know, it's you do know, burrata and cherry tomatoes are seasonal. Yep. Your wish, that's yep. your wish. We'll make it happen. Yeah, low CO two <laughs> burrata and ripe tomatoes. Yeah, preferably yellow and yeah, red yeah, yeah, a mix, <laughs> a mix, yeah, <laughs> a mix, yeah. So that's easy. And the book is interesting because I am a complete and utter book nerd. In fact. My husband makes jokes about my Kindle. He's <laughs> like a third person in the marriage. <laughs> and he said it's, it's had a detrimental effect because I can't just finish a book. Like I can just download the next yeah. one. And there's no pause. But what's really interesting is I am not, like I said, I'm not a big reader of like business books or self-help books, even though I probably should. I'm a big fantasy reader. And I think it's because my job is pretty intense and I use it as pure escapism. Mm. I was trying to think about what book I should tell you that wouldn't be too embarrassing. Anything by Sarah J. Maas, I, I think I would read. Yeah. But no, if I had to pick a book, I would say A Discovery of Witches. Okay. 
We'll, we'll put that in the show notes so people can have a look. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing so much of your story and your journey with us. I've absolutely loved this conversation. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Good luck with everything you're doing at Tier. I want to ask before I let you go, if people can reach out to you on LinkedIn. Yes, please do. Please do. And if you are interested, if you're a woman in tech and you're looking to either join an early stage company or wanting to start your own company, I have a women's entrepreneur network called Auxilia, which is a LinkedIn group. So please, please join. We've got some amazing women. Brilliant. We'll put that link in the show notes as well. Georgie, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate our conversation today. Thank you so much for having me, Axel. And thanks for sharing some amazing voices with the product community. I think it's really important. My pleasure. If you're hearing this, you've listened to this episode all the way. And for that, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite platform. Also, if you have a minute, please consider giving us a rating as it helps other listeners find the show. You can find all the episodes and resources on panache.io slash podcast. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O slash podcast. Until next time.